if all that we accomplish today is gathering together as a family of believers and being reminded of and declaring that Jesus is the Lord of all the earth, then we have fulfilled our purpose today. Jesus is the Lord of all the earth. Jesus is a real man, and he's really alive. It's not just a figment of our imagination. It's not a fairy tale. He's a real person who came and lived and was buried, rose again, and now is ascended to heaven where he lives forevermore. One day he's coming back. Right now he's on the throne in heaven. He is Lord over all the earth. Jesus said before he ascended, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord. And we have come today to acknowledge that, to believe that, to confess that together as a congregation of believers. And the Apostle Paul wants us to be reminded of that in Romans chapter 10, that Jesus is the Lord. And that through faith in him, there is salvation. Through faith in Jesus, the risen Lord, there is salvation. If you get that one idea, then you've got the idea of the sermon today. Through faith in Jesus, the risen Lord, there is salvation. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we've come today to come before your word, to listen to its truths, to, to understand what they're teaching us, to submit ourselves to its authority. Lord, we ask that your spirit would help us today to see and understand the truths of your word, to accept them, to believe them, to trust them and to, to place our lives on Christ, the risen Lord. Lord, I pray that you bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. Last time that we were together in Romans chapter 10, we saw Paul's concern for the Israelite people. And it's a concern that he has expressed many times throughout this section of Romans. And his concern for them is for their salvation. He sees in his day, a great number of Israelite people who are not trusting in Jesus. They've rejected him. 
And according to the gospel of the Lord, that if they reject Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for them. And so Paul has been asking this question, why is it that this great number of Israelite people, descendants of Abraham, have not believed? And on the one hand, we can view it through the inscrutable sovereignty of God as explaining the way all things unfold in the world. That God has purposes that we cannot fully grasp, fully understand, but that fully fit with the sovereignty of the Lord over his world. But now he's also looking at it through the lens of the human response to the message of the gospel. And from the human side of things, from, the, from looking at it through a human lens, the Israelite people ha- are not going to be saved because they've not believed the message. They've stumbled over Christ. Their Messiah came... But they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. And instead of building their lives on him, they're stumbling over him and will face destruction. He says the problem of the Israelite people in Romans 10 verse 4 is that they did not see the purpose of the law as pointing to and culminating in Jesus Christ. So in some sense, they've missed the whole telos the end point, the goal of the law. That it was all moving forward towards something, that, that it was not an end in and of itself, but that it was testifying to and bringing us toward an even greater climax of what God was doing in salvation history. And now Christ has come. Jesus has come. And they've missed the climax. They've missed the goal, the culmination of everything that Moses and the prophets were speaking of. Can you imagine how disappointing that would be? Just think about, I mean, this is just a small illustration, but imagine you're watching a movie or you're reading a book and you read 90% of it, but you miss the climax. That's no fun, right? And, and plus, if you miss the climax, you miss the whole point, right? Oftentimes, if you miss the way that the conflict resolves, if you miss the way that everything fits together in the end, you've kind of missed the whole point of the whole story. Think of that through the, through as, a, as a way to understand the whole story of creation, the whole story of human history, that, that the Old Testament is a large part of the story, and, and we can't understand the whole story without the Old Testament part of the story. But also we have to see that in Jesus is the climax, is the culmination of that Old Testament story. And the Jews miss that. They didn't understand that Jesus was their Messiah who had come to redeem them. And so Paul is addressing the unbelief of the Jews. And he says in verse number five, he goes back to Moses. And he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's going to quote a lot here from Moses. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. And he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse five where it says the, the person or the one who does these things will live by them. What's the, what's the these things? It's the law. It's the commandments. So in the context of Leviticus 18.5, the, the one who does these things is the one who does the law. The one who obeys the commands of God will live by them. Now, what does that mean in Leviticus 18.5? Well, what it means in Leviticus Leviticus 18.5 and in the context, and we also saw it in Deuteronomy 30 in the passage that we read this morning, is that in order to 
to stay in God's blessings and to experience his blessings in the promised land and to live long in the promised land, it required obedience to the law. It required doing. It required obeying. And so what Paul is is seeing here is an emphasis on doing in the law. That's the righteousness that comes by the law. And what does he mean here by righteousness? We've said it a couple of times in the last few weeks that the idea of righteousness here is the idea of attaining a right standing before God. So attaining a right standing before God. And the problem is, is that Jews or Israelites who want to try to attain that right standing before God on the basis of the law of Moses, the only way that they could possibly do that is to do the law, all of it, and to do it perfectly. And so I think the point that Paul's making in verse number five is that striving for a right standing before God by obeying the law of Moses is a never-ending, never-succeeding struggle. In other words, the person who wants to live by the commandments of the law, they have to actually do the commandments of the law. And they have to always do them. And they have to perfectly do them. And so you might could say there is a hypothetical possibility that if someone perfectly obeyed the law of Moses, that they could be saved. But the problem is, is that's impossible, right? It's impossible. None of us are capable of doing that. For one, we're born as sinners. We're born with an inclination to sin. We're born guilty in Adam. And so we have this tendency to sin and to deceive, to be selfish, to be violent, to be envious, jealous, that's our tendency from the moment that we're born. And so for us to, to hope to obey the law of God perfectly, it's a fool's errand. It will never, ever happen. It's impossible from a human standpoint. And so what Paul is saying in verse number five by quoting from Leviticus is, you can try the doing part, but you'll fail. You can try to attain a right standing of forgiveness and justification before God on the basis of doing But you will fail. And it's a never-ending struggle. It's a striving that never ceases. And it's amazing to me that that when you think think of it from that point of view, that it's amazing that people still hold on to that viewpoint as the default way of thinking about how to be made right with God. If you talk to people just in general, if they believe in God at all, and they believe in an eternal life and a heaven and a hell of some sort, and you talk to them and you ask them questions about, so is there a God? Is there a heaven? If they say yes to those things and you ask them, well, how are you going to get to God? How are you going to have, how are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to have eternal life? Generally speaking, the average person is going to say, well, you know, I've done good things. You know, I'm pretty good. I've, you know, and then they'll say, well, I've never done the big ones, right? Adultery, murder, you know, I've never done those, and, and I'm a generally good person. And what are they doing? What are they relying on? They're relying on their doing, aren't they? And for some reason, they want to rely on their doing to earn eternal life. And Paul says it's impossible. And on top of that, 
It's just an eternal, never-ending struggle, striving. There's no confidence in it. There's no assurance in it. Without fail, if someone gives you that response of, this is how I'm going to get to heaven is by my good works. Without fail, they have zero assurance of that. They have zero assurance of salvation. Why? Because they can't know if their good deeds are going to be good enough in the end when matched up with their bad. So there's zero, there's zero assurance and zero confidence, and it's a continual striving. And Paul says, ultimately, it's going to fail. Righteousness, trying to stay in a, a right standing before God by obeying the law of Moses, it's a never-ending, never-succeeding struggle. But, Paul says, the righteousness that is by faith, that's what he wants us to focus on, right? So he's contrasting this righteousness by the law. That is, trying to gain a right standing by performance of the law versus gaining a right standing before God by faith, by receiving it as a gift from God. So what does he say about the righteousness that comes by faith? His point in verses 6 through 8 is that the gospel offers a right standing before God by faith, and it is readily available and accessible. It is readily available and accessible, and we could even add to that understandable. It's right there. And so as opposed to the never-ending striving and struggle and failing of achieving righteousness by the performance of the law, in contrast to that is the nearness and the availability and the accessibility of faith in the gospel. So he says in verse number six, but the righteousness that is by faith says, and here he's quoting from the Old Testament again, and here he's quoting from Deuteronomy, or here, Deuteronomy 9, this little short statement, do not say in your heart. It's a very short statement, but it is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 9. And it's significant because he grabs this little phrase from Deuteronomy 9, do not say in your heart, but it's interesting because of the surrounding context of Deuteronomy 9. In Deuteronomy 9, in the surrounding context, Moses says to the people of Israel, do not say in your heart that it was because of our righteousness that the Lord is causing us to inherit this land. That fits perfectly with what he's doing in Romans 10, isn't it? It's not by our righteousness. It's not because of what we've earned. It's not because of what we've done. We've not earned it. We've not merited it. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses is reminding the people, when you go into the land of promise, when you go into Canaan and you defeat the Canaanites, don't think it's because you're great. Don't think it's because you're righteous. Don't think it's because you're so wonderful. No, it's because God has shown you grace. So that's the context of Deuteronomy 9. And he brings that into this context of, don't think it's because of your righteousness that you can attain righteousness before God. It's by grace. So do not say in your hearts. And now he moves to Deuteronomy 30. Who will ascend into heaven? And in verse 7, he also quotes from Deuteronomy 30. Who will descend into the deep? Now, in the context of Deuteronomy 30, what was Moses doing? Moses, Moses was telling them about the commandments of God. 
He was telling them about the words of God, the, the words that God had given them, that if they would obey them, they would be blessed in the land. And as a part of telling them and reminding them about the words of God, Moses says to them, these words of God, these commands, they are not so far removed from you that you have to say, who's going to go up to heaven to get them for us? Or who's going to go into the deepest sea to bring them out for us? No, they're near. They're in your heart and in your mouth. So in other words, in Deuteronomy 30, what Moses is saying is, these laws of God, they're right here. You don't have to go and search them out. You don't have to go find them. You don't have to go to the highest heaven and bring them down. You don't have to go to the deepest sea and bring them up. God's word has come to you from God to you. So in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is emphasizing the condescension, the grace of God in giving them, bringing to them his law. And that if they will obey it, they will be blessed. Now, what Paul is doing in Romans 10 is he is focusing on that gracious aspect of God in giving and making accessible and bringing near the word. But in Deuteronomy 30, it was the law. In Romans 10, it's the gospel. What Paul is saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ is now near, it's accessible, it's understandable. God has brought it down to you. So that's why he says, so who will ascend into heaven? That's the quote from Deuteronomy 30. And then Paul comments on it by saying, that is to bring Christ down. What does he mean by that? Who is capable of going to heaven and bringing the Christ, the Messiah, down to earth? No one, right? No one can do that. That's impossible. No one can go up to heaven and get Christ and bring him down. But what did God do? God gave Christ and sent him down, didn't he? In the incarnation. The Lord Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, this little baby born in the manger, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. God brought him down. God sent him down. No one had to go up to get him. God was gracious, wasn't he? God was gracious. He initiated it. He sent Christ down to be our Savior and our Messiah. And the amazing thing about this is the Jews missed it, right? It's, this, is, this is almost a further rebuke of the Jewish people for the fact that the Christ was right in front of their face and they missed it. Just like in Deuteronomy 30, Moses told the people of Israel, you don't have to go far and wide to find the word of God. The word of God is right here. And now to the Jewish people of his day, you don't have to go far and wide to find your Messiah. God brought him to you. He brought Christ to you, God in the flesh. And then also from Deuteronomy 30, who will descend into the deep? In Deuteronomy 30, it's the sea. And here, Paul references it as the abyss. And, and in the Old Testament, oftentimes those two terms are used interchangeably. The idea of the, the great depths of the sea or, or the, the abyss down into the, the depths of, the, of the, the realm of the dead or the underworld even. 
And so Paul interchanges these words, which sometimes were interchanged in the Old Testament. Why? Because he's going to make a subtle point in that shift from sea to the abyss. That is the depths of under the earth. Why? Because that's where Christ was, wasn't he? When? When he was buried. When he was buried, just as no one could possibly go into heaven and bring Christ down in the incarnation, no, no one, humanly speaking, could possibly descend into the abyss and bring Christ up from the dead. But what did God do? God brought him up, right? Just as God brought him down in the incarnation, God brought him up in the resurrection. And now he is here. But what does it say? Again, from Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So whereas in Deuteronomy 30, the law, the commands of God were given. They were supplied. They were offered. They were right there. They just needed to receive them and obey them. Now, Paul is using that principle to apply to the gospel message that he is preaching. The gospel message of Christ Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. This gospel message that we proclaim, it is right here. Christ was right here. He's near you. And there may be even a, an additional aspect of the nearness that Paul is, is drawing on here in the nearness of the coming of the new covenant. Where in, in Jeremiah 31... The Lord says through Jeremiah the prophet, there's coming a time when I will make a new covenant with my people and my law will be on their hearts. And so Paul is saying, you don't have to go far and wide. The gospel message, the, the Christ of salvation is here. He is near. He is readily accessible and available. The gospel is there. So what's the response then? Third point from this passage, verses 9 and 10. The proper response to the gospel message, which results in salvation, is a full trust in and acknowledgement of the lordship of the risen Christ. The proper response to the gospel message, which results in salvation, is not performance, but trust. Not doing but believing. The proper response to the gospel message is full trust in and acknowledgement of the lordship of the risen Christ, and it results in salvation. He says in verse 9 and 10, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Saved. And then in verse 10, he says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I want to focus on verse 10 just for a moment, and then look at 9 and 10 together to see what Paul is saying here. It's interesting, sometimes bad interpretation of Scripture happens because passages are really complex. So, for example, there are some complex things going on in Romans 9, right? That's some difficult, 
argument, very tight argument that Paul's making there. And it's also very complex ideas that are hard for us as human beings to understand. So bad interpretations can arise out of that. But what's even amazing to me is that it seems like more often than not, bad interpretations of Scripture arise out of passages that on the surface look very simple. And Romans 10, verse 10 is one of those. It seems very simple. And especially when you quote it out of its context and you just look at Romans 10, 10 by itself and you quote it, you could come to a false idea about the response to the gospel message and the means of salvation. Because if you read Romans 10, 10 by itself in isolation without understanding what Paul is doing in the context, you might come to the conclusion that there's a two-step process to be saved. Right? I mean, on the surface, that's what it seems like. Step one, you believe in your heart. You're justified. Step two, you confess verbally with your mouth, and then you're saved. So on the surface, it seems like a quite simple understanding, but it's really bad theology. Because what Paul is teaching here is not a two-step process to salvation. It's one. It's faith. And so out of a, a misunderstanding of verse 10, you can get all kinds of distortions like you have to pray a prayer to be saved. You have to say a prayer. You have to verbalize a prayer to be saved. Or, or you have to make a confession of faith, perhaps in baptism, publicly, to be saved. Or, or you have to have an abiding witness of Jesus in order to keep your salvation. You have to keep confessing that Jesus is Lord to be saved. All kinds of bad interpretations come out of this idea that there's a two-step process here as if Paul is separating the belief of the heart and the confession of the mouth. And Paul is not separating them into two different activities. For him, they're one. And the proof of that is in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the result? You're saved. There's no two-step process here. There's not two different activities. The confession of the mouth is simply the fruit of what's going on in the heart. Also, we should not want to press Paul too hard here on the two separate aspects of heart and mouth because there's a reason why he is employing heart and mouth here. Because Moses did in Deuteronomy 30. The quote from Deuteronomy 30 is this. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And in Deuteronomy 30, all that meant was the word of God is right here. It's with you. Not two different things was meant by it's in your heart and in your mouth. All Paul is doing is he is using those exact words from Deuteronomy 30 and he is rhetorically turning them into his purpose here for the gospel of salvation. He's not viewing here a two-step process. For him, confession is the outward expression of the inward belief. It is the belief that saves. And that's clear from all of Romans, isn't it? It's the belief that saves. By the way, I would take the passages in Scripture, like, for example, Acts 2.38, where it says, Believe and be baptized for the remission of sins. 
I understand it the same way, that baptism is not a second step or a verifying step of salvation. Baptism is simply an outward expression of the faith that saves. Same thing here with confession. Confession is not a, it's not a, a requirement in order to be saved. Confession is the natural response, the fruit of belief, which saves. So the gospel message, it's right there. It's near you. So the proper response to it is faith. It's belief. Not doing, not performing, but trust, faith. And who is it that you're trusting? And and it is a who, isn't it? It's a who. It's a person. So it's not just that you're acknowledging a statement. You're acknowledging a person. You're trusting a person. Who is that person? It is Jesus. He identifies him by name. It is Jesus of Nazareth. This person that you rejected, that you nailed to a cross, that you said was a fraud, he is the Messiah. He was your Savior. He was your Messiah, and you missed him. And on top of that, now he is Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord is master, right? Lord is master. Lord is king. Lord is ruler. Lord is sovereign over all. But I think Paul means even more than that here because of his, of his quote from Joel chapter 3 in verse number 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from the book of Joel. Now here's what's interesting. Who is being referred to in Joel when it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's Yahweh, right? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's the God of the universe. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Paul says here, Jesus is Lord, he's not just saying he's master, he's king, he's ruler, he's sovereign. He is saying he is God. He is Yahweh. He is the only God. And in order to be saved, you must see him as God and Savior. Faith in Jesus, the risen Lord. And the last thing that Paul emphasizes in this passage is that this gospel message, this salvation, is for everybody. It's for everyone. Regardless of race, social class, ethnicity, who you are, where you've come from, how morally upright or worthy you are, this gospel message of faith in Jesus Christ is for everyone. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah 28. Anyone. The emphasis is on anyone. The one who trusts, the one who believes will never be put to shame. And the idea there is shame and judgment. Shame and disgrace by being judged. And the one who believes in Jesus will never be judged. Will never face the shame of judgment. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then he quotes from Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And this goes back to emphasizing Paul. one of Paul's overriding themes throughout the whole book of Romans is it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you can claim Abraham as your father or not. There is one salvation, right? There's one salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. So today... The way that we would seek to apply this message, I think, is, is fairly straightforward. And that is, the gospel of salvation is for everyone, regardless of what nation you come from, regardless of what color of skin you have, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of whether you're rich or poor, male or female, whether you are a good person or a bad person, the way that society would define it. doesn't matter how morally... Worthy you are, this message of salvation is for everyone. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in faith is saved. Anyone. And the other main theme of this passage is it's faith, not performance. It's believing, not doing. And so the main idea of this text is this. You can never hope to achieve a right standing with God on the basis of your own good works. You can never hope to achieve a right standing with God on the basis of your own good works. So stop striving and start trusting in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved regardless of who you are or where you're from. Isn't that an incredible message? Why would you want to seek anything else? After hearing this message of the gospel of Christ, why would you want to go back and say, no, 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 I, I really want to do it myself. I really, want to, I really think it depends on me. It really depends on how good I am. And, and if I do good works or give the charity, why would you want to fall back on that when you have this free, gracious gift of Christ from God? God sent Christ down to us. We didn't have to go up to get him. God brought Christ up from the grave. We didn't have to go into the depths to get him. Here is Christ right here. Believe and be saved. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father God, when we really stop and meditate on the gospel, the message of faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation, it is truly humbling. Is humbling, Lord, because we know that there's nothing that we could ever do to hope to earn it. All our striving would be losing. It's only one way to you, Father, and that is through your Son, Jesus. We thank you that in your grace you sent him down. He came and lived among us. He was God with us. We thank you that he went to the cross and shed his blood for our sins. And then you brought him up from the ground. You brought him up from the depths in resurrection life. And now he is Lord. Father, may we confess, may everyone here confess that Jesus is Lord. May we find salvation in him. I pray that everyone in this room will find salvation in Jesus through faith in his name. Save your people, Lord. Draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.